Well, first of all, there's no Best Buy on Mars. <laughs> Hardware redundancy to hair width precision, wavelength filters, and zoom capabilities. A lot goes into designing a camera to crown the top of NASA's next flagship rover, Mars 2020. But what goes into the development process, and how do scientists and engineers work together to meet the mission's requirements? All this and more on today's episode of the We Martians Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the We Martians podcast. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. And welcome to IAC Week. In Bremen, Germany this week, the International Astronautical Congress is happening and it's always a fun space week. This is the same Congress that Elon Musk presented the BFR at in 2016 and again in 2017. Though he's not speaking there this year, it's always a time to hear lots of great space developments. There's a lot going on on Mars too, especially with the rovers. The dramatic recovery operations for Opportunity continue. Still no sign from the rover, but the active listening campaign we talked about last episode is ongoing. Curiosity is dealing with its own trouble right now as well. About two weeks ago, the rover began having trouble accessing its internal memory and science operations have been halted while engineers work on the computer problem. She can still communicate though, so it's not scary yet. All this rover activity reminds me that these are complicated machines and that's a good backdrop to frame up today's interview. But before we get to it though, I want to tell you about Mova Globes, the new We Martians partner who is helping support this show. Last week I introduced Mova, who makes some really nice decorative globes that are solar powered and spin on their own without the need for messy cables. They've got over 40 designs, including all kinds of space bodies like Jupiter or Mars. I've been really happy with my Mars globe and it'll make a great piece in the new off-nominal studios I'm putting together now. This week, MOVA sent me a blog post detailing how they worked with NASA to put together their globe of Vesta. It's a great interview with Mark Raymond, who's the mission manager for JPL's Dawn mission to Vesta in series. Mark described how the Dawn mission took stereo imagery of Vesta, which is a massive asteroid in the asteroid belt, and put together a topographic map shaded in colors by elevation. This is the map that was used to make the MOVA globe, so it makes for a really nice colorful piece. And I'll, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes for the blog post so you can read more about the interview and see the model itself. If you'd like your own MOVA globe, head over to bit.ly slash movamartians and use the code WEMARTIANS for 10% off your order shipping anywhere in the Americas. Alright, let's get to it. NASA's upcoming Mars 2020 rover will be the newest flagship mission for the space agency. It's an iteration on the Curiosity design, but with more of a focus on sample return and some upgraded instruments. One of these upgrades is to the camera at the end of the mast. Mastcam Z will have added zoom functionality and create stereo images of whatever site the rover ends up landing in. I wanted to learn more about this marquee instrument, and so I reached out to the sources directly, including the science team and the operations team at the company putting the camera together. Okay, so we're here with 
Melissa Rice and Elsa Jensen. Melissa, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing great. And Elsa, you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. I'm really, really excited. I, this is a, an interview I've been chasing for a while. So um, I'm obviously a big fan of, of uh, Mars. Well, that's that's pretty obvious. This is a Mars podcast. Um, but I mean, I, I love cameras and uh, this is uh, one of the big ones that's coming up. So uh, the mass cam Z and on oh, this is we're going to have fun with this because you're going to want to say mass cam Z, but I'm going to want to say mass cam Z. So it might get a little back and forth, <laughs> but uh, but that's fine. We'll that's figure okay. it out. We have a Canadian colleague on the team, Ed Plutus at the University of Winnipeg. So we're used to the Zs. OK, good. <laughs> um, so before we dig into it, though, I'd love to just get a little bit of background about the two of you. Um, so maybe, uh, Melissa, we'll start with you. Maybe just tell us a little bit about your job, um, you know, where you work and what your role on the MassCam Z team is. <laughs> well, my role on the MassCam Z team <laughs> is <laughs> I'm one of the science co-investigators. And specifically within the team, uh, we have divided the responsibilities, at least at this point, into various working groups on the team. And the working group that I'm co-leading is the multispectral working group. And so that's the group that's looking specifically at the capability of the filters that are going to be placed in front of the both the camera eyes. So I'm sure we'll get more into the nitty gritty of what those filters are going to do and the spectroscopy that the cameras are going to enable us to analyze. Um, but where I am, I am in Bellingham, Washington. I am the first and only planetary scientist at Western Washington University here. And so I'm physically located just uh, a short drive south of the Canadian border. Um, I'm waving at you uh, out the <laughs> window here. And um, but, you know, a lot of my work is done remotely um, with teams at Arizona State University, which is where our MassCam ZPI is, with teams at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I work on the Curiosity rover mission as well, and so a lot of my time is spent on telecons and doing remote work with that mission um, with the folks distributed mainly at JPL, but also across, across the country and the world. Awesome. And then Elsa, how about you? I work at Malin Space Science Systems in San Diego, so I'm sort of at the southern border where you guys are at the northern. And uh, I am the instrument operations manager here. I lead a team of 15 scientists and engineers, and we're really in charge of planning and taking the pictures with the cameras once they get to Mars and Jupiter. Um, currently, we have three active flight missions, um, two at Mars, the Curiosity rover, of course. We have four science cameras there. And then on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, we have two cameras that look down from above onto Mars. Um, so that's a great you know, dynamic. We can look both on the surface and from above. And then we have the Juno cam on the Juno mission at Jupiter, which is also super cool. Um, but I personally spend most of my time on Mars 2020 with the development, you know, working um, with everybody at this planning and stage where we're figuring out how we're going to command the cameras and what we're going to do with them and how we're all going to work together and on Mars in 2021 when we land. 
That's great. So if someone's never heard of this, this instrument, Mass Cam Z, um, what's, what's the elevator speech? Like what's the, what's the two sentence description of, of what this instrument is and what it does? Well, if it's a short elevator ride, if we're just going down one floor, Mass Cam Z is the eyes of the Mars 2020 rover. And going into a little more depth off of that, these are the two eyes that are going to see our first look of new sites as we're driving across Mars. So these are the eyes that are going to survey the landscape around us. And these eyes have a zooming capability. So they're going to zoom in to things that are way out in the distance ahead of us. They're also going to zoom into things that are right at our feet in incredible detail so that we can see um, the, the details of the structures and the rocks. These eyes also see in colors that are beyond what the human eye is capable of seeing. And so they're going to tell us about colors of Mars that you or I would not see st if we were standing on the surface. Its color ability is specially attuned to the color, color diversity of the Martian surface. Um, and then the other major thing that these two eyes are going to do is they're, they're going to see with two eyes. It's a stereo system, which means that we can take pictures with the two eyes that are separated um, by some distance, just like our two eyes are our, on our head. And we'll be able to get a stereo view, which means we'll be able to have a 3D capability we'll be able to have some depth perception. And that's going to help us understand the science of what's on our landing site as well. So that that I just gave, that was the uh, skyscraper elevator pitch going, <laughs> up, to the, going up to the penthouse. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a pretty capable um, instrument, like with a kind of a pretty wide um, skill set, if I can put it that way. It's a lot of different things that it can do with one, one instrument. Yeah. And Part of that is because we, we call ourselves one instrument, but we're actually two cameras. Right. And so that's, and the fact that we are two identical zooming cameras with two separate filter sets in front of each of those eyes really means that we have an incredible depth of capability. So anytime we send an instrument somewhere, usually what we, we have is some sort of science objective. So could you maybe describe like, you know, what sort of questions is, is Mascam Z trying to go after? Like what, what, what are we trying to, you know, solve with this instrument? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And the specifics are really going to depend on where on Mars we decide to land. And so as far as hypothesis testing and the specific science questions we're going to be able to answer, that's going to depend on where we land, what the geology is, but generally, wherever we go on Mars, we'll be able to do several things. Um, we have an objective of characterizing the regional geology at the site. And so that means going into survey mode to some extent, taking panoramic images in 360 degrees, taking images in stereo to get depth perception and uh, 3D um, structures on the surface. Um, so this will be a survey and reconnaissance tool to get a sense of what the broad scale geology is around the area where the rover is going to be doing very detailed kind of centimeter scaled investigations. So we have the science objective of 
understanding the regional geology and the context of the rover's specific investigations. And we also have objectives to do more small-scale science with this uh, incredible zoom capability and our stereo capability to be able to look for specific textures in the rocks, uh, variations in grain sizes, orientations of layers and bedding in the rock, things that we can do with the zoom capability and with our 3D stereo imaging capability to interpret the history of specific outcrops. And with that, we'll be able to do things like interpret whether the sediments that we're seeing had been transported by water or wind or other processes. Uh, we'll be able to do things like interpret what the flow directions were if we end up in a place where we see sediments transported by water. And then another science objective that we'll be able to, should be able to achieve with MassCAMZ is some broad characterization of the mineralogy at these sites. So I mentioned that MassCAMZ will be able to see in colors beyond what the human eye is sensitive to. We have a set of filters um, in front of each of the two MassCAMZ cameras. There are eight filters in front of each eye, and so that means that we have 16 total filters. Um, a couple of them are clear, so we can get a, a clear snapshot in just a red, green, blue uh, normal color image like we would take with a your smartphone camera, but we have other filters that only let a narrow range of wavelengths pass through, and we can take pictures in those specific narrow ranges of wavelengths through the red, green, and blue colors, but also into the infrared. And it turns out that Mars is a more colorful planet in near-infrared wavelengths than it often is in the visible wavelengths. And so looking at those colors that are in the near-infrared will allow us to see um, broad compositional differences in the types of iron minerals that are present on the surface of Mars. And also, we'll be able to say something about the presence of hydrated minerals on the surface. So just by taking our pictures uh, with these different filter sets, we should be able to make some broad interpretations about the history of water and the history of um, iron mineralogy and how these rocks formed. Wow. I want to just pick up on something you said there where uh, it depends on the site that we, we choose. Is there really that much of a difference in sort of the investigations that you're going to, you know, design the camera and, and, and go after if we pick, you know, Jezero Crater versus uh, Northeast Sirtis? In terms of the operations, I think that, and Elsa, jump in here, um, the operations procedures that we're developing for using the cameras after we land on Mars, those are pretty much independent of where we end up. That's but true. The but the specific types of science investigations that we do, that is going to be, uh, that's going to vary landing site to landing site and how our cameras are going to be the most useful to the larger rover investigation is going to depend on the landing site as well. Um, for example, one of our candidate landing sites, uh, the Columbia Hills, that is the location of the Spirit rover. And Spirit had instruments um, that 
uh, had cameras that were somewhat similar to MassCam Z, although we we have several substantial uh, improvements on those previous generation cameras. But because we had a set of stereo cameras that were had uh, similar filters to what we're sending with MassCam Z, we had those with Spirit at one of these proposed landing sites for Mars 2020. We have some idea of what the color variability and what types of textures and regional geology are going to be there. And we know from that experience that Spirit's landing site is a particularly dusty place. So what that means for our color investigations and the spectroscopy is that looking, looking off into the distance, our spectroscopic capabilities might be less useful there than at a place where the rocks are generally less dusty and their colors, uh, their true colors are able to shine through a little more easily. So um, I'd, I'd like to learn a little more about how we design and, and, and build a camera like this. So maybe maybe this question is for Elsa more, but like maybe to start off as a really generic question, but what's different about a camera on Mars versus one that you would build for Earth? Well, first of all, there's no Best Buy on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just go get new parts. And there's also no mechanics or repair shop. So first and foremost, everything has to work right. It has to work right the first time. It has to work right for the span of the mission that you're planning. In this case, it's about two Earth years. Um, and hopefully much longer, as we've seen with the Mars rovers. They're built so well that they have lasted many, many lifetimes uh, for spirit, opportunity, and curiosity. So that's certainly what we want to do. Um, and what happens is when you have that kind of requirement set, as we call it, um, your tolerances, the, the way you build things has to be so perfectly fitted together. We're talking orders of millions of an inch that the parts have to fit together because they have to really withstand three main um, environmental processes that's working during the mission that you wouldn't have to deal with on Earth. So the first one is really the launch. When you launch, you have enormous vibrations. So if you have parts that are just a little bit off, they would vibrate together and could get damaged. So you have to have a really tight fit. Um, the second one is as you fly through space, it's very cold. When you get to Mars, it's also very cold. And moreover, on Mars, the surface, you have cold nights and warm days. So you have this thermal cycling that's happening consistently that especially your electronics have to be able to deal with. So you have to get parts that are created for that, that are, that are tested for that. And your whole design, the custom design that each of these cameras are has to be able to withstand that as well. And then there's the radiation, which obviously is much stronger during the space flight and on Mars than here on earth, because there isn't the protection uh, from the atmosphere. So all of those things together mean that the design has to be very precise and especially the manufacturer has challenges because things have to be so tightly built to the specification. One example that I can give, um, I was talking to one of the engineers about this and he said, you know, we put two parts together. Um, it wasn't on this particular camera, it was another camera for, built for space. 
and the part was painted on both sides instead of just on one side. When they put it together, it didn't fit because of the paint. <laughs> so they had to shave off the paint in that where the two fittings came together. That's how tightly these things fit together. I'm doing a lot of uh, home renovations right now, and I can see the layers of paint <laughs> on my wall that are causing me a lot of problems. And now you're giving me your flashbacks of, of all the trouble I'm having. <laughs> Yeah, it's really incredible, um, both how good the engineers that design these cameras have to build, as well as during construction. Um, I was just in the clean room yesterday uh, with two of our engineers, Hakeem and uh, Greg at uh, Mail and Space Science Systems, and they were putting together the memory boards called the dais with the housing that goes around it, and they had to put the adhesive that's the fancy word for glue, um, on in such a specific way. And the adhesive had to be measured to the gram level of how you put it together. And it had all the air had to be forced out of it in a vacuum. It's just incredible. It's a tiny, tiny detail of how every single part of this camera is put together so precisely with procedures that are stepped through one after another, you know, many pages just to adhere the board to the housing. Um, so you can imagine as all of these parts are put on the boards and everything is put together, it's incredibly um, work intensive and, and elaborate, complex. And it's done with testing every step of the way to make sure, okay, this is, this is good. Okay, next step, this is good. So um, definitely a custom process. And what we get at the end is we get to Mars and everything works. And then we can take these phenomenal pictures that Melissa was describing. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have both of you on was to talk a little bit about how the science side of this and the engineering side work together as you build this camera. Could could you describe a little bit about how those interactions work and how you know how you communicate feedback uh, along the design process? Yeah, I think it's actually all through the process. You know, it starts when you're creating the vision because the scientists will have goals for science, as Melissa was describing, and then they immediately work with engineers, such as our engineers here at Mail and Space Science Systems, um, to say, okay, what of this can be done? And every time we do a mission, we go a little further. You know, we develop new technology, we develop new capabilities that are going to be used for the next layer of science, so to speak, that we achieve at Mars or Jupiter in our case. We've also gone to the moon. Um, so it's, a, it's that dynamic. What does science want to do? What does engineering bring in terms of realism and advice in how this could be done or how much of it could be done? And then you have that constant challenge of the science. Okay, could we do this? Could we do this? And that dynamic continues during manufacturing if there's an issue. And in operations, which um, Melissa was talking a little bit about, and that's my area of expertise, when we on a daily basis decide what we're going to take pictures of, the scientists have a goal, and then we work with them as engineers to say, yes, that can be done, or, oh, how about over here? And what I particularly enjoy about this process is as we work together, we're learning from each other. So as engineers, we're learning what the scientists want. And at some point, it gets to be 
the case that we can start to advise, well, how about this? How about this? That they might not have thought about and vice versa. They learn so much from us about the cameras and how they work that when they pose a scientific problem question that they want to investigate, they've started to become so knowledgeable that they can start to really use the the nitty gritty of the cameras, like the, the capabilities that are more complex. So we're seeing that on the missions that last longer. And I just, that, I just get a thrill out of that, you know, to see that scientists and engineers are educating and both becoming better at their jobs as we go along in these missions. Yeah, I'd say that's a really accurate representation. It's a, a constant dialogue between the engineering and the science side and uh, an iteration of scientists saying, well, we'd really like to do this. Can we, uh, can we get the zoom to go this far? And the engineers say, well, that'd be great, but here's the reality of the situation and we can only get you this far. And it's a back and forth. And as a scientist, I sometimes see it as my job to be continuing to think big and uh, to give the engineers challenges that push their limits and keep their jobs interesting. Yeah, it's true. the the interaction between the science and the operations is something that I, I'm fascinated with. I'm, I'm an operations geek. Like I, I get into the, the details of just how we do, you know, processes and stuff. I'm reminded of um, this is very recent. So actually, Melissa, you might have been a part of this for all I know. But on the Curiosity rover, there was a, a situation maybe in the last week or two where uh, there was a, a drive scheduled and then a planned investigation on the rock. But once the drive had been completed, they realized the arm couldn't reach it. And so they had kind of lost a Sol. And so since they had lost a Sol, they they changed their plan and said, well, there's actually a better science target just a little bit over the ridge there. And then they, they altered course and went that way instead. So it kind of made me think about like, okay, we want to get this question answered, but the engineering constraints say we can only go this far if we want to get it tomorrow. And so we, we kind of chose the less optimal science target but once we'd realized we'd lost the sol anyway we went for the the better target and it just kind of made me think about like that's that's how much of a geek i am that that interested me <laughs> um but it's you know it, it showed how how the engineering does have to play a, a big part in in what kind of questions we can we can answer right right and i think understanding the role of both sides and having respect for both sides allows for situations like you just described on Curiosity, where the science team is able to uh, react dynamically and change a plan on the fly to react to something that that was kind of an engineering constraint. Whereas, you know, you can imagine a, a much less functional team devolving into chaos and finger pointing and name calling. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I can see in, in these early stages of preparations for operating MassCam-Z on the surface in the larger 2020 mission that we have a, especially on the MassCam-Z team, we have a very tight connection between the scientists and engineers and Elsa is doing an amazing job and uh, working on the operations side to make sure that these flows of dialogue continue both ways between science and engineering. So speaking of engineering constraints, uh, this is a question from one of our listeners, uh, George, and he was asking, you know, there's a lot of congestion happening with the infrastructure at Mars, you know, specifically around the orbiters um, in terms of getting, you know, getting a hold of bandwidth or, or, or 
just the ability to send signals home are there does that play into your your construction of mass chem z like knowing that you're going to collect a lot of data that's going to be you know filling up those pipes quickly is there any accommodations made for what you know about the infrastructure today well it's definitely a real thing um the competition, if you will, for resources at Mars with all the missions going there, not just from the USA, but from other countries as well. Um, what's great about how we have worked together with international partners is that aspects of the missions, especially communication, data flow, we've actually um, worked really well together on that. So. The U.S. helps Europe in certain ways. Um, navigation is one way that um, the U.S. has helped the European missions. Um, and another is, you know, as as assets, rovers, landers get to Mars, there's communication that we can help share each other's resources. But downlink, as you just mentioned, is a very big deal because we're getting more assets than ones that are there are lasting longer, which is great. And it also means they they keep having um, downlink available. So the way we deal with it is not so much at the instrument level. There's no been really no changes to MassCam Z in terms of direct communication that happens through the rover itself. But as a mission, we're already talking to other U.S. missions. Um, um, the Maven mission is one example, and talking to them about how we could. Um, do downlink through them and get data to Earth from Mars. And then we're also talking to Mars Express and TGO in Europe um, for the same reasons. Um, I think one of the things from an instrument perspective that we think a lot about is, you know, we could have a lot of downlink depending on how many orbiters and rovers will actually be there once we get to Mars in 2021. It could be a different number than we have today, right? Um, if we have a lot of downlink, we think through scenarios for that. If we have a little downlink, we have to think about image compression. We have to think about what data constraints that might be put upon us. And we think about that in terms of the scientists and engineers planning together how we will um, create the science for the day and get that commanded. So we have it as a factor, but we haven't changed the camera design itself for it. Um, but it, it's definitely an issue and it would be really fantastic if we could get a mission to Mars, um, get more missions to Mars for relay, for communication, more data back, because we certainly are generating it both with MassCam Z and also the navigation cameras that are on uh, the 2020 missions have much more data coming back or the capability to send much more data back than we have on the Curiosity. Yeah, it's an interesting problem because the the cameras we're sending are getting better, but the orbiters stay the same, right? So the, the data size is going up, but the relay capability is, is either constant or decreasing based on capabilities. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And on the science side, we're starting to think about how we want to acquire images on the surface in the event that we have these very lean downlink situations. So I mentioned that we have a filter set in front of each of the two MassCamZ cameras uh, with eight positions in each filter. On each of those two eyes, one of them 
is going to be a solar filter, uh, which means that we have seven filters for kind of surface geological investigations. So ideally, we would want to always be taking full 14 filter images to get as much spectral diversity characterized as we can um, with both camera eyes. But, you know, downlinking 14 full images every time we want to take a snapshot of a scene is not going to be a realistic situation, even in, in the most favorable orbiter downlink capability situation. So on the science team, we're starting to think about how we might come up with um, systematized ways to use reduced numbers of filters in our observations to still get as much of that full spectral characterization as we can. So that's some work that we're that is ongoing and some discussions that we're having about how we can use a limited subset of this full spectral capability um, in order to get as much information as we can with as little downlink as possible. I mean, that's at first you kind of that sounds like it's, you know, kind of a downer, like you have to pick and choose. But I guess it also means that it, it teaches you to be really, really skilled in, in picking out the best stuff. So your kind of value per kilobyte, if you will, was going to increase because of that sort of practice, right? Yeah, that's true. It makes us really value every bit that we get down and really put some thought into the science rationale for why why we're acquiring that, um, which is good for us to go through as scientists to be thinking about the, the value and the need for the observations that we're acquiring. More from Elsa and Melissa when we return. Have you ever felt like wanting to do more to help humanity explore space? Well, so have I. That's why we're putting together the We Martians Travel Grant. We want to help send a real scientist or engineer to a conference to share their work on Mars, generate new ideas, and grow in their career. But we need your help. Pledge on Patreon to We Martians for $5, $10, or whatever you can afford. You can head to patreon.com slash now and make a deserving student's exploration dreams come true. We're just a few dollars short, and everything makes a difference. Every one of you can help us reach Mars sooner. So MassCam-Z is sort of a, an iterating instrument. It's sort of an upgrade from Curiosity's regular mass cam, if you will. Um, I'd like to learn a little bit about what's different. So could you describe sure. what we've upgraded on mass cam Z versus the one that's on Mars right now? Yeah, the first and foremost, the big step up is um, the zoom capability. On uh, MSL, it was in the original design. However, we got through to a certain point and had to de-scope the zoom cameras and go to a fixed focal length on the left, which is 34 millimeter, and then a different focal length on the right, 100 millimeter, so that we could at least see things um, in different uh, zoom positions, if you will, um, and see them closer up and further away in higher resolution. Um, 
But what we really wanted to do was have the capability to do stereo on both of those and be able to zoom in and out on a range of values for that. And that's what we've done for MassCam Z. That was the, in the proposal, that was the big upgrade and it's been successfully developed. So I'm happy to say that we will be able to do that on Mars. It's in the cameras now. It's it's already being built and has been built for the uh, engineering model cameras. So we're ready to go with that. And um, Melissa, I think, uh, would uh, be a really good person to describe the other big change we made in the filter sets. Yeah, so in addition to the change in the zoom capability, uh, the other big science changes that we've made have been in the specific wavelengths of filters that we are putting into the eight position filter wheel that's in front of each of the MassCam Z cameras. So for the most part, these are going to be the same filters that were used for, uh, for MassCam on Curiosity, but, but in the experience that we've had in working with Spectra from MassCam and from PanCam on Spirit and Opportunity beforehand, um, we've identified a couple gaps in the wavelength space that weren't covered by those previous filter sets that we're going to be filling in for MassCam Z. So we have two new filter positions that we are adding uh, to our uh, to our wavelength space for MassCam Z. One's going to be around 600 nanometers, and that's going to help us distinguish between different types of iron oxides. And we have an, another new filter coming in around 975 nanometers, and that one is going to fill in uh, a gap in the longest wavelength part of MassCam Z's spectral range, where there is a small narrow absorption due to water or hydroxyl in, uh, that's locked up in hydrated minerals. So that new filter is going to help us distinguish between different types of hydrated phases. And that's also going to help us with some other broader absorption features related to iron bearing minerals as well. So those two new filter positions are going to help us with our ability to interpret the broad chemistry and mineralogy in the images that we acquire. And then we also have some uh, differences in how we're arranging the filters between the two eyes that should make it easier for us in our analyses, in our analyses as well. Um, but Elsa mentioned the zoom capability and that's really the biggest improvement here. And not just for the ability to be able to take wide angle images and then zoom into a narrow field of view, um, it's going to have implications for how we use stereo imaging, being able to have the same field of view between the two eyes. That's really going to make stereo imaging much easier and stereo analyses, I expect, on the Mars 2020 mission are going to be much more frequent than we're able to do with MSL MassCam right now. You know, MassCam has one eye that's essentially zoomed all the way in and one eye that's zoomed all the way out. And um, comparing those two different field of views with their different spatial resolutions has been uh, tricky to do on the timeline of tactical operations on the rover. So for Mars 2020, the zoom's gonna allow us to use stereo data much more efficiently. It's also going to make interpreting our spectroscopy easier as well, having the same uh, image 
field of view and same resolution between the two eyes for comparing the different filter positions between the two eyes. Should also make some pretty cool VR experiences, I'm expecting. <laughs> oh, I know. I can't wait for that. That should be good. Um, uh, you, you mentioned that the... Um, you know, the zoom capability was originally scoped on MSL and that's kind of was famously removed or infamously removed, if you will, um, during the development. Is there anything like that that's happened with MassCam Z, like some future thing we're going to see in MassCam Z++ down the line? Like, is there anything that we've descoped so far in this development? There's not actually. Uh, we've successfully developed everything that we were that we were setting out to do. Um, and you know, I have a little anecdote from the early, early days on Curiosity, the first 90 solves, we were at NASA JPL in Pasadena. And um, one of the rover planners came up to me, you know, there's a lot of pressure, right? We were hoping everything is gonna work. We don't quite know yet, we're checking everything out. And every day there's something new that happens that we're, you know, um, trying new things, trying new instruments, et cetera. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a high pressure environment and we're on Mars time, you know, we're working nights and days, um, changing the time every day we would go to work because of the different Mars time. So it's a bit of a tense environment and at the same time, super exciting. And I think we're all looking forward to doing it again in 21. So one of these days we're working and I've got, you know, 20 ops engineers. I got a science, te science team of 25 people. I've got three PIs and this is my job environment. One of the rover planners comes up to me and he says, Elsa, I have a complaint about the cameras. And I'm like, uh-oh, okay, this is not what I want to hear, right? <laughs> and he says, I can't tell how far away things are because the cameras are so good. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that he was used to the MER cameras and because the way, you know, the performance of the optics was, you could see kind of how far away things were based on the granularity. <laughs> and he had to reset his eyes, his mind, looking at the at the MSL pictures of, of uh, especially mass cam. So that was his complaint to me, you know, it was a it was a thinly veiled compliment, which was really nice to hear. Um, and because of that, you know, it was one of the reasons that we really didn't have a lot of changes to the cameras for uh, Mass Cam Z. Um, and the other one was cost. You know, um, the whole mission is looking to do a lot of ambitious things. And it was really nice for them to have a camera set that not only was known to work, but worked really well. Um, so those two things together really... Um, meant that there wasn't a lot of interest anywhere to change the cameras themselves. We added the zoom, we changed a few t filters, as Melissa mentioned, um, but that's that's the basics of it. It was really a good design that we were able to carry forward. That's great. I'll just, I should mention too, that, that question came from a listener as well. So thanks to Chris for sending that one in. Um, so the last thing I want to kind of uh, approach in this conversation is a little bit about the outreach campaign. So um, there's actually some pretty uh, formalized and, and, and pretty broad outreach programs happening for MassCamZ. One of them is with the, the Planetary Society. Could uh, one of you maybe walk through what that, that outreach you know, partnership looks like? Yeah, this is something that I'm really excited about. And, you know, every mission has... Um, 
every mission has outreach that's done around it. And most NASA missions, that outreach is kind of centralized and done by uh, done by an office at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory or um, by groups at NASA headquarters. And so most NASA missions, the outreach is kind of formalized and done from the top. But in MassCam, for MassCam Z, even in the instrument proposal, the Planetary Society was identified as an outreach partner specific to the MassCam Z cameras. And I think that's really important and exciting because these, as we've said, are the eyes of the rover. And these are going to be capturing uh, the images and the data that are going to most excite the public and be most immediately accessible to a wide range of people. So having as many venues to get that uh, that incredible excitement of what the cameras are seeing out to the public, I think is really important. And I really commend our instrument PI, Jim Bell, for having uh, involved the Planetary Society from the beginning. So what what we're doing uh, practically with the Planetary Society is that we're working with their um, staff to uh, integrate um, members of the Planetary Society into all aspects of what the MassCAMZ team is doing. And so Bruce Betts uh, at the Planetary Society has been regularly attending our team meetings in person and attending uh, our telecons that we have weekly in order to stay abreast of the new developments for MassCAMZ. Emily Lakdawalla has been um, writing about MassCAMZ and she's contributing education and public outreach targets for our calibration process, which is really cool. This is something that hasn't been done before. Emily is compiling um, some beautiful sets of targets that we are going to image with the MassCam Z cameras, the actual flight hardware, during our calibration procedures. And usually during calibration, we take pictures of geometric targets, these boards with all sorts of lines and dots on them. We take pictures of rock, uh, rocks that have specific types of spectral vari variability and textures that we want to investigate for science. Uh, but this is the first time we're going to be taking pictures with the actual MassCAMZs of things specifically for education and outreach purposes. So Emily's putting together um, some really nice displays, um, a rainbow of different minerals, and I don't want to give give away just yet everything that's coming up onto that board. But but I think that's a really great example of how we're integrating um, activities for the purpose of education and outreach into aspects of the mission that were, that were traditionally just for scientists and engineers. And the other major thing that the Planetary Society is doing is um, uh, compiling and hosting a bunch of information about MassCAMZ images, um, blogs for the public. Um, I, I know that uh, there is a, a specific URL through the Planetary Society for all of the MassCAMZ information, and Jay Gelsa and I can share that with you to share with the readers as well. Um, but there have been some detailed blog posts about what MassCAMZ has been doing, and I'll let Elsa speak to those since she's been involved very heavily in those writings. 
Yeah, I think uh, one of the really cool things about um, Jim Bell's vision of, of involving educational public outreach so much into the mission is that it isn't actually just him. It's a scientist. Melissa is a great example. And even some of us engineers are already now before the mission even gets to Mars involved. And I love that aspect. You know, I think it's super cool to go out in schools and, and talk to students about this, show images. Um, I have two sons in middle school and high school. So as they've grown up, I've gone to their schools and, and other schools. Um and then these blogs is a new way that um, I've enjoyed being involved um, more directly with the public, you know, in a much broader sense. Um, so we've been sharing with the world, really, um, you know, little tidbits from our science teams. Um, I took some pictures during development and as I mentioned earlier, I was in the clean room yesterday and um, I took pictures there, of course, and I hope we'll make another blog for that. So those will be available on uh, Planetary Org's uh, website coming up. Yeah, and so I, I love the the blog posts. They're they're really great. Um, and I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes. And one of my favorites, it was uh, one that you did, I believe, Elsa, was about the, um, you know, condensing the the Persol operations into a five-hour window, which gave you kind of some some efficiencies in terms of the lost sol you get with the the differences between the days. It was one of my favorite ones that we got to read. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's a fun one, and I think we'll um, do more on that coming up because we're still refining that process. And as we get to Mars, and certainly after we land, we'll we'll share that with the public. You know, what is that like, and and how is that going, and you know, what did we learn along the way? And I'm sure we'll have to make changes and and implement you know things that we've learned. And to me, that's the best part. You know, we just continually learn and uh, make changes and do it better and better all the time. That's what it's all about. Yeah, Elsa, the blog posts that you've been contributing they're really great at showing people the human side of this mission. I think so much of formalized outreach is about the end results and the science and the beautiful images and the discoveries and what this means about our place in the solar system. And that that's all great. But I think we reach and capture the interest of a much wider segment of the public when we also acknowledge the human story that goes into building these things and collecting this data. And I think it's going to be really neat to allow the public to better follow along with our human experiences of living on Mars time, reacting to unforeseen crazy circumstances that are sure to happen once we land on Mars and how, how we're all getting through that together. Great. So um, as we're wrapping up here, is there is there anything that you'd like to point the listeners to if they want to learn more about MassCamZ or um, the other work you're doing, any, you know, your Twitter accounts or websites, anything like that? Yeah, well, I would recommend folks take advantage of our great outreach partner, the Planetary Society. Um, on there, if you go to the planetary.org and you search for MassCamZ, you'll find all of the great blog posts that Elsa has been deeply involved in writing. You'll find episodes of Planetary Radio, uh, where myself and others have been interviewed by Matt Kaplan. You'll find all uh, all sorts of images from MassCamZ's development and images from our team meetings, and, and there's only more to come. 
Yeah, that's really the main site to go to. And of course, um, NASA JPL has their um, sites about the mission and the instruments. And you can also go to my company site, uh, mssmn3ss.com and learn more about our cameras. That's great. Well, Elsa, Melissa, thanks so much for, for joining us today. I this was an awesome conversation. I'm really excited about it. Um, and I, I think the listeners will be excited about it too. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Thanks for setting this up. I know it's difficult to get three people with busy schedules to set aside an hour to all talk to each other, but I absolutely had a great time. I love doing this stuff. It's nice to step back. You know, sometimes um, making science plans for cameras on Mars feels like a day job, but when you step back and have a larger conversation about it like this, helps me realize that I get paid to take pictures on Mars and to look <laughs> at those pictures. And things are going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jake. It was great talking about this. Um, as Melissa said, it really reminds me too of uh, what a fun job I have. And the fact that I get paid to do this is pretty cool. Okay. Well, stop, stop, stop bragging now. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have for today, Martians. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the MassCam Z instrument as much as I did. And if you have more questions about MassCam Z, or MassCam Z, or Mars 2020 in general, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So send me an email at info at wemartians.com or a tweet at we underscore Martians. And if you enjoyed today's show, consider joining over 100 other listeners on Patreon. You'll get bonus content for as little as $1 per month, like additional audio from this interview with Melissa and Elsa. We talk about Elsa's experience on other Mars cameras, and Melissa shares some thoughts on rovers like Opportunity and Spirit and how they make us feel as humans when they go away. And we're still working hard to put together the We Martians Travel Grant, which will formally kick off once we reach our $450 per month pledge goal. And as of this morning, we're just $35 short, so head over to patreon.com slash Martians and pledge today. But if that's not your thing, remember to hit up our shop at shop.wemartians.com or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us. That's all for today. We'll talk soon at Aries.